HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now. Hello, this is your host, Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly, a podcast devoted to inspiration for life and for the food you eat. On today's show... I'm dipping into the world of wine with two amazing women, one who runs a killer wine shop inside of one of Los Angeles' most successful restaurants, and one who has taught me much of what I know about up-and-coming wine regions, vineyards, and producers. But first, the food. I need to tell you about this meal that I had when I was in Austin a couple of weeks ago. I went to a place called Kumori Tatsuya. A lot of people know the sister restaurant, which is called Ramen Tatsuya. People love that place. So I was really excited to go to this uh, new restaurant. I got there in an Uber, but what was special about that, <laughs> maybe there's some challenges with that, but what was special about that was it was a pickup truck. I've never been taken to a restaurant in a pickup truck. It was a great way to start the meal. And that theme continued. When I walked into the restaurant, I felt like I was in a cowboy bar, except it had been taken over by really kitschy Japanese people. There were signs and photographs of Japan and signs in Japanese everywhere. You were immediately, it was like you're on a, a film set or completely transported. And then there was the food. I, I really loved what I ate there. 
I don't know a whole lot about Hot Pockets. I didn't grow up eating them, but they do something called a Hot Pocket that is caramelized cheddar on the outside, a tofu pocket, and inside there is gooey gouda and smoked brisket. I mean, this thing, I ate it so quickly I could barely remember it and had to begin eating the second one. So... If you're in Austin, you have to check this place out. Yes, they have yakitori. Yes, they have chawanmushi. Yes, they have a whole host of delicious sort of stoner food. Just go and indulge and have a really good drink. Okay, now my first guest. My first guest is Helen Johannesson, who's the director of operations for the group that owns John and Vinny's, Petit Trois, Animal, Son of a Gun, and more in Los Angeles. Helen also runs the eponymous wine shop, Helen's, inside John and Vinny's, which is, has been called a wine terrarium. I love that idea. Helen's swimming among the bottles, a little glass window to look in when you're eating your pizza. Helen, welcome to Speaking Broadly. Thank you so much. I want a Hot Pocket. (laughs) I am telling you something about how crusty that outside was and how gooey the inside was and how just cheesy, delicious the entire thing was. I was really won over. What what wine would you pair with that? Oh, my God. I mean, maybe like a Japanese wheat beer or something really refreshing like these Olivier Le Manson wines from the terrain. He makes this Sauvignon Blanc and he uses... Just like really natural methods, but it gives natural wine a great name. So it has that like brightness of Sauvignon Blanc, but like a nutty roundness too. So the acid and the weight would be so good. I'm I have ready, to say, Dana. I know. I've never been to Austin. <laughs> oh my gosh, you you have to go and, and bring that bottle of wine with you. Although they have a great bar program, so you have to try what they have also. So, Helen, you grew up literally 30 blocks from me in New York City. Which, I did. I grew up on that brief side. Which um, I, I, I love that small fact. But I also love the fact that you went to Trevor Day, a school that I know quite well by reputation. It's, it's kind of like loosey-goosey, you know, kids can determine their education for themselves. Or, or it was. I don't, I don't know that it still is so much. But I would love to hear about how your high school adventures may be indirectly responsible for this extraordinary life in wine that you're leading right now. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think when I started in high school at Trevor Day School, my mom immediately regretted it. And she was like, she's never going to be a lawyer or a consultant. Like, it just wasn't going to prepare me for life in a way that she felt like paying for a private school education should. But I think on the flip side and what we've come out to where, where like with where I'm at in my career is that there was this leeway and this like student teacher trust, this encouragement to be creative and to be innovative. You know, I started like a performance art class with my friends because we didn't want to take drama or dance because they were too structured. And (laughs) yeah, and and, you know, it was sort of, 
it was sort of a time where on the, you know, in our own mentalities as teenagers, we were telling ourselves, you know, this is just so easy. This is easy because we can do whatever we want. But I think under the surface there, there was a real visceral desire to actually be able to do what you want and be successful. And that has really been something I've carried with me and was a big reason I moved to Los Angeles and worked in food and beverage and never did in New York was I felt I can be successful doing whatever I want that <laughs> in is, L.A. <laughs> that's pretty empowering uh, to learn that lesson as a teenager. But you also traveled, right? And, and traveling is something that um, you love to do. And the lessons you learned and what you ate and what you drank there are things you sort of carry with you to this day. Yeah, I mean, it started at a very young age. My best friend and I, Amanda, for our senior project surrounding performance art, convinced our parents, I think I told you this story, but I'll tell you again, convinced our parents to let us go to Europe for six weeks by ourselves with a budget to five different countries. And we're like, we're going to go see performance art. The school approved of it. And there we went. We packed our little bags. We were off to Rome. We didn't see any performance art. We <laughs> ate so much food. We embedded ourselves into various cultures because we went so many places and just had this wild time. But then we came back, and our school was like, so um, the senior thesis presentation are you guys going to present your performance piece based on your travels? And uh, we wrote a letter that said, we are not doing a performance because that is the performance. <laughs> and, uh, it was um, disappointing, I would say, to some, but it's sort of, it was one of those moments where we were like, people are going to doubt us, people are going to think we're crazy, but we're just going to keep going. And each of us, it took each of us a little while to get to our given paths, but once we got there, we both steadfastly stayed on them and have been successful, so it's been great. So you have a, a shop that is a, a mini-universe. You've created an in, entire world inside of another world, so you're like the, the Russian doll of wine shops, and I'm wondering, what is it like to be sort of that, that inner circle of wine inside John and Vinny's? It's incredibly intimate. Um, it's, you know, John and Vinny's, you're supposed to come in and feel like you're getting a hug. I always want people to walk into Helen's and feel like, yeah, they're also getting a hug, but they're also getting an experience. It's almost like there's so much wine, it's overwhelming. And if you know anything about wine, you're going to be tickled pink because you're going to see all these wines that you're excited about. And if you don't, we're going to guide you through the experience. Um, People really love intimacy, and I think we're all really scared of it in a lot of different ways, but Helen sort of forces you to break down your own fear factors about what you know about wine, what you don't know about wine, because you can't escape me when you're in there. <laughs> um, or you can have the room to yourself. I mean, that's the beauty of it, is <clears throat> it really works in many different ways, but it's like a gem box. I mean, I'm so honored and touched to even have this space, but it's also such an amalgamation of everything I've worked for. 
I know it's sort of by like being surrounded by all your best friends, right? Because you've chosen all wines that you love, and you get to look at them and be with them. And you get to be intimate with them and share them yeah. with people. It's 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 kind of amazing. But you also yeah. you also we eat pizza. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, you also do delivery, and that notion of you know getting really great wine by delivery is fabulous. But mm-hmm. um, did I did you? run delivery for a while like were you ever the delivery girl for six months i was the only delivery girl i mean we had maybe one or two people who would help me out in a pinch but um when i started the wine club which is a delivery based service and for any delivery that came in i would hop in my car and just run it over there i would drive the route and eventually that became unsustainable But it was really, you know, the first year Helen's was open, I was really bogged down by a lot of work. Our company didn't have the infrastructure yet Uh to support me just focusing fully on that. So in this second year it's been open, I have made a full court press, and the growth has been incredible. It it feels amazing. But, yeah, the delivery was, um, people, I would ring their doorbell. This is what I want to know. Like, you're in Los Angeles. What is it? I would just be like, hi, here's your delivery. And they would, like, look, and they'd be like, are you Helen? And I'd be like, I am. (laughs) (laughs) And for a lot of people, I mean, they loved it. They were like, what are you doing? But, you know, it kind of added to the charm of Growing a small business. I still do deliveries. I did one on Friday. So (laughs) what did you learn? What did you learn from the customers by doing delivery? Like, did you learn something about where they lived or, you know, did you get any information that has shaped you in any way or did, were there some funny interactions? I think it shaped how to structure my employees better since I did the driving route for many, many weeks of the wine club for my initial members, I got to know, okay, all right, you know, this person's never home. So what are we going to do about that? Or this person's housekeeper is finicky and doesn't like to answer the door. What are we going to do about that? Or, you know, it's really hard to find this address. You lose your GPS. So (laughs) it's sort of like some people, you know, it's that extra step of communicating and, hey, if you're not home, we need to leave a slip and where do you want us to leave your wine so it doesn't get stolen? And all of these things that when I hired my first driver, I, it was very helpful to him to have me be like, okay, listen, when you go on this route, here are the things that you need to look out for, X, Y, and Z. Right, the, um, rab- the rabid dogs or um, the big tippers. Like, what was the biggest tip yeah. you got? <laughs> yeah. Did anyone exactly. tip you? Kids with squirt guns. <laughs> People just look at you strange, too. You know? <clears throat> it's, um, it's a, delivery is a very strange thing because you're a stranger in a neighborhood that, and you're not branded, you know, because we're small still. Right. So it's like, it's not like the, the UPS truck pulling up and everyone's like, oh, yeah, it's the UPS. I know it. I trust it. You know, I'm pulling up in like a white Sprinter van <laughs> with no windows. <laughs> But at least I'm cute. That's okay. That's that's true. That's for sure. Yeah. So, so, I think I've learned more probably about my customers based on the people who come into the shop. And um and I know you hold classes in the shop and that must teach you a lot about the people too what they're interested in. What what have you found has been the most compelling class that you've held or had the most interest? Yeah, I think Probably classes on France and Italy because deciphering those wine labels is really challenging 
So classes where it's not so easily obvious, um, those have always been successful. Like I do a lot of classes on the Loire Valley or intro to Burgundy because people are like, I hate Chardonnay. And I'm like, no, you don't. Let's try (laughs) some from Burgundy or Piedmont, you know, and Piedmont's such a huge area. So it's sort of that introductory into let's baby step into this together so that you can start at least when you're out in the world being able to figure out and navigate. You know, people always are blown out, blown away that, like, Sancerre is a place. It's not a type <laughs> of wine. But it's, it's, it's someone like me. It's like I never am tired of telling people that. I think it's such important information and makes them more fun when they come into the shop to shop with because as we build their knowledge, they just are willing to adventure out into different things. That must be really gratifying when you can sort of go to the edges of what you really love, knowing someone's taste and matching what you love and what you know they'll love to make a, you know, a happy marriage. I mean, I think, yeah, that's been one of the most rewarding aspects is that the shop is so small in some ways. It's like eight feet deep, like by seven feet. You know, it's really tiny. And so I can't carry everything. It's not like you're walking into a big wine shop that's like Bordeaux over there and uh, (laughs) New World Wines over there in Australia. So for a a lot of people who come in, they're so used to that. They're like, whoa, what is going on here? What do you have? What don't you have? And it's explaining to them that this is a constantly flowing curation of what I'm interested in right now. And so it will be heavy in countries I'm more prone to like. But then it has. So it's like getting people out of their comfort zone, too, also means them. It's, it's that thing of getting to know their palate. They're like, okay, I like your taste. I'm willing to cannonball off into the Languedoc Roussillon. No problem. <laughs> and right, it's not going to hurt. It's not going to hurt when I land. So yeah. <laughs> when, when you look at the, the wines, because they are a reflection of really what you, you love, yeah. what does the wine selection say about you? Like, what, it, what does it say? Where do you like to be? What are the wines? Um, I think it, you know, in my hopes of hope, I hope it shows that I'm a very dynamic person. You know, there's some very high-end collectible wines, and then there's, you know, there's like Van de Garde and Van de Soif, like wines to cellar and wines to drink now. And there's also a wine for everyone. But I think it shows like a, a fearlessness, and a willingness to be creative and not conform. And it's not like I'm actively doing that, but I believe in the wines that are in there, and I believe that they are what people should be drinking. And so, so you know, I do find about... challenges from people who are like, you don't have this, and it's like, I'm sorry, I don't. So let's talk about what you think people should be drinking. What should people be drinking right now? I think that people should be drinking... A, things that they like to drink, but also things that they are acquiring an understanding for. Um, You know, it makes a lot more sense for me. You know, obviously budget is always an issue. It's the first question I ask people when they're coming to the shop Uh because I'm not an upseller. If you want to spend $15, we're going to get you some dope wine for $15. Uh But if you want to spend $100, I would like to know that right away because then we're working with a different caliber. Um, I think people should be drinking wines that are made really well and that start at the farm level and that that continues, but that what ends up in the bottle 
is really balanced. It's really clean, and there are all kinds of wines that, like, you could find yourself accidentally drinking three glasses of. I mean, that's my <laughs> test. It's like if I taste a wine and I cannot imagine drinking more than one glass, it does not come into the shop. Wow. And why is that a, the key parameter? Like, what's wrong with one awesome glass of wine that's memorable that you, you know, just like savor every sip. Like, why do you need three glasses to have it be the perfect balanced wine? I think that it's, you know, if you're sharing a bottle with friends, you'll probably have a glass and a quarter. And I would want that wine to capture your heart and imagination so much that you wish you had that second bottle. Uh, I I see. That you feel at home with it, that you feel comfortable. I don't advocate people going home and drinking three glasses of wine by themselves, but... It's sort of something I've carried over from the restaurant, which is it's not really about the first glass you sell a customer. It's about the second glass, you know. And if you don't have a great first glass, they're never going to want to get a second glass. That is just a consumer trend. What I think is interesting about what you're saying, it actually reminds me of uh, the food side, right? So if Mm -hmm. a chef gives you... Uh, your main course and you have one bite and you're like, I understand it. I get it. I really don't need to eat any more of this because it hasn't yeah. intrigued me. Um, I'm, I'm kind of satisfied and I'm not, um, I don't need to eat any more Then that's not a great dish. That's a boring dish. So maybe yeah. it's that sense of intrigue that is um, parallel in the world of wine. I just have never, um, I've never really thought about it that way. So yeah. what, what producers um, or regions are speaking to you most right now, assuming that, um, I mean, there's some France, there's some Italy, you were talking about that with the classes, but um, what's captivating you? Yeah, um, I mean, probably when something really captivates me, I buy every single one of their wines. And probably most recently, and ironically, like funnily enough, it's a domestic producer, this woman, Faith Armstrong Foster, She's making wines under the Onward label, and it's up in the Redwood Valley, which is just west of Napa. Um, But what she's doing has so much energy and so much, every sip is exciting. You know, as the wines change in temperature, as the wines have been open longer, and, you know, I think it is the approach that she's taking to winemaking, Um, but she's making, you know, I was never, like three years ago, it would be hard-pressed for me to be like, I love this pet net, unless it was like something really specific. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, it, evolution is a really interesting thing for yourself within this business. I Actually, I'll, I'll mention that later because I've been thinking a lot about it. But she makes these marvelous pet nets from Malvasia and one from Pinot Noir. Her Pinot Noir Rosé is like clean and salty, but juicy all at the same time. She makes Carignan from 120 year old vine. So I'm like pretty much obsessed with her. Uh, I am. I am now her. too. I'm, so what's the price point on the wine? They range. You know, the rosé is like twenty three dollars retail. Um, God, that and, much love in twenty three dollars retail. I'm so there. And how much yeah. does she make? Does she make like tiny volume, or is it? You know, am I going to be able to find it? Or are you going to ship um, it to me? I don't know if you can ship yeah, it in California. She, I think they'll ship Winery Direct um, if you go to her website, onwardwines.com. Uh, I'm pretty sure they distribute it in New York with um, Lou Dresner. Uh-huh. I, I hope they do. Um, 
but I don't know about nationwide. That's no. the only thing. Her production isn't huge. Right. So well, if you see the wines, you should buy them because they're awesome. But outside of that, I'm always investigating specific parts of France. Um, there's few new pro- producers in Burgundy that I'm really into. Uh, Fred Cossard is one. He's been making wine a long time, but these, wa- these wines are very specific and special and tiny, tiny production. Um, and then there's this like super funky winemaker outside of the outside of Auger and the Côte d'Auger, VDVTVNT, and uh, his wines are really cool and very unusual, but such a different expression for the region. Um, so tell I don't me, know. there's too many, Dana. I'll just I think going. I think we're good with three. I feel good about three. Three is such a good number for you know makes a threes, good, good everything set. Happens everything in happens in threes. So tell me about the evolution. What were you going to say about that? Yeah, so, you know, I think that one thing, you know, I was in Animal the other day, and uh, Animal's where I started, and there's the same servers are there. And one of the servers came up to me, and he was like, he was like, man, your palate is really evolving and changing. He he said changing, and I like to think of it as evolving. (laughs) I was like, what do you mean? And I think it's that there's wines that are on the list that wouldn't have been there six years ago, and... I think of someone like Robert Parker, who has said that natural wine is a fraud, right? And he he makes these, like, blanket statements, which I think pigeonholes him into just doing the same thing, reviewing the same wines. These are the wines that I get behind, which blocks out a whole swath of creativity and wines that are of quality and value. And I like to think of that in myself and what I'm doing. It's like how... How much is it important that you change as you get older? I think it's something good for everybody to think about. I mean, you're right. It's we all evolve every day, whether we notice it, someone points it out to us or not. And it's important to not stay stuck. The world yeah. changes around us. So if you stay put, you're kind of lost, even though you don't know it. Uh, I was reading that you had some extraordinary mentors. Um, one was Jay Z and one was Diane Keaton, and was that um, was that because you're inspired by their work or you're inspired by them as humans? I was just like that really intrigued me. What can you yeah, tell me that's about that? So funny. That is so funny that you found that. Um, it's actually really true. I never had like a, a traditional in person mentor as I started in this business, and someone once asked me, and I was like, well, if I really had to say, it would be Jay Z because. You know, I was obsessed with his music growing up, and, you know, it was all about, like, the hustle and that you don't give up and that you you start every day like you haven't gotten to the place you want to get to yet, which is, like, such a foundation of our company. It's, it's like you, you congratulate yourself on your successes, but that, you know, you got to wake up and be hungry and attack the day and keep on the hustle. And then I think for Diane Keaton, it's just like she's so unconventional in the world of what people think a woman should be. And she's smart and people love her. And like that whole realization that, you know, and sometimes she pushes it to extremes, but I like that. And that a buttoned up shirt all the way can be sexy and uh-huh. that smart is sexy. And, and what, is, what is it to be appealing in the world? And she's such a great example of, of what that can look like. I've been a fan of hers for so long. I, I, <laughs> I love I love that you chose her. On this show, we 
we I ask my guests to nominate someone for the Food Hall of Dames. In your case, it would be Food and Wine Hall of Dames. Is there a woman, in addition to the uh, winemaker you mentioned, who you think deserves recognition and they might not be as well known as they could be? And we can share that person with the listeners. I think, I mean, just within our family, the, our chef de cuisine at John and Vinny's, her name's Courtney Store, and we call her Full Court Press. <laughs> she's like, she's one of the hardest working people I know. She reminds me a lot of myself. Uh, she was a line cook, and we promoted her to chef of John and Vinny's a few months into being open because the chef we'd hired didn't work out. And I really advocated for her with John and Vinny. I was like, we need her spirit, you know, and she is that place. She has troves of children who come in with her parents who make her drawings, who are obsessed with oh, her. Oh, my goodness. That's and really the- special. Yeah, and, you know, Chef Courtney, Chef Courtney, you know, she started this whole movement within John and Vinny's that's so her own, and I think that it's really, really special, and I'm really excited for where, and she's incredibly talented as a chef, so I'm always like, her, for sure, (laughs) because she's so freaking awesome. Well, we have our, we have our wines to buy, we have some inspirational stories, and we have an amazing woman for the Hall of Dames. So thank you so much, Alan, for taking a break and spending time with me on Speaking Broadly. And listeners, we're going to take a short commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to hear from one of the people I admire most uh, in the world of wine. Be right back. And Helen, thanks so much. Thank you so much, Dana. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters who acknowledge the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and welcome back to Speaking Broadly. Today, I'm devoting the program to wine. I love to drink it. I think we need some more people on this podcast talking about what they love to drink. We just heard from Helen Johannesson, and up right now is a very special guest, Megan Kriegbaum. I worked with Megan at Food & Wine for years, and Megan would always introduce me to incredible stories, incredible people, and incredible wines, and I want her to do that for all of you. So, Megan, how are you? Hi, Dana. I'm great. How are you? I am excellent. You would always surprise me. You would be so, so, so excited (laughs) about 
something um, that I had never heard of. So it always took a lot of convincing to explain to me why I should care. And you did a really great job of that. Some of my favorite favorite stories are the ones where you were just relentless and persistent. And sometimes it took a year for me to say yes. Sometimes it took less. But um, but now I'm inviting you. You have open mic, Megan. I'm not going to tell you, you know, <laughs> they don't have enough news and they don't, you know, there's um, the story's not complicated enough or what does the house look like that they live in? I just want to know. I want to know the wines that you are completely loving right now because I know you're always, always ahead of the curve. Well, I, this is so, and I was thinking about this, and this is so not ahead of the curve because I've been in the past year really um, focusing on classic regions and the lines that have been there forever, but maybe are a little um, less appreciated than some of the sort of bigger marquee lines. And um, so I've been delving into regions like Burgundy and Piedmont and sort of looking for the wines that, that the farmers and that the winemakers drink when they're not drinking Grand Cru Burgundy. <laughs> um, and and in, in, in Burgundy, there are two different um, styles of wines that I've just been really drawn to, and one's called Oligote, and it, that's the name of the grape. And uh, it's a white grape, and it's a little bit softer um, than Chardonnay, a little less um, sort of shined up but it's, it's really high acid and citrusy and green apple And I've found that some of my favorite, more um, desirable Burgundy producers actually make Oligote, too, because they have these little plots that have been around since their families started farming. And um, one of my most, most favorite Burgundy producers um, is a Alice and Olivier Damore, and they're up in Chablis. They make some of the most beautiful Chablis around, uh, mostly from biodynamic grapes. And uh, they are, their wines are still really accessible, even at, at the higher end level. It's not anywhere near what most of Chablis is yet, but their Aligote is so charming and so drinkable and so beautiful. And I, and there's something about this grape that's so compelling. So I'm appreciate it. I'm curious about it. So, <laughs> yeah. um, because the land in Burgundy is so expensive, obviously, right. and so people for people yeah. to have like a patch of, you know, I mean, any amount of space devoted to a non-essential grape and then be making wine from it. That's a curious choice. Why? Why? Why is that? Well, and I, I kept thinking that, oh, of course, Ligote is going to vanish from Burgundy because someone will think, oh. The, Obviously, Chardonnay is so much more valuable. Exactly. But I think, I think two things are happening. I think one is that some of the areas in Burgundy just are not perfect for uh-huh. Chardonnay or for Pinot Noir, and so these grapes have been able to thrive. But also, their families have been making these wines for so long, and it's not it. It would be so sad to sort of lose that tradition in the history of the place. And there's another wine that's made there called Passitude Grand. Um, and that is, it's a it's a red wine that's made from Gamay and Pinot Noir, and that's the same thing. Why why not tear out the Gamay and plant Pinot and charge, you know, thousands of dollars for your for your wines? But by by blending these two wines, it makes this really just so desirable, satisfying, juicy, everyday drinking wine that is 
is gorgeous. And I, I've been, I, you find this wine being made in Volnay, where the wines are astronomically expensive ordinarily, but you can get a really great bottle of Pastucran for $25. That's great. Maybe, which is just, yeah, which is awesome. How it's do you really spell cool. that? I mean, I'm, Oh yeah, it's pasitugran, and I think it, I think it means something along the lines of throw it all in. Oh. <laughs> but it's, it's, yeah, pasitugran. Um, really, it's P A A S S E T O U T G R A I N. Oh, it is pasitugran. No, yeah, beautiful. And this is this happens all around the wine world, which is really fun. I think that's that's, that's really exciting. I didn't realize that. I always thought when winemakers weren't drinking their own wines or their friends' wines, which I know that they do a lot, I sort of thought they were <laughs> drinking beer, you know, or... Yeah, there definitely is that history of, of it takes a lot of beer to make good wine. <laughs> um, and I'm sure that that goes on, but I, I think, you know, obviously, some of these wines are so thought after that it makes more sense to sell them and to drink other wines that you have access to every day. And I, I, another funny thing about winemakers is they always make a secret sparkling wine. Every no way. Visited. You just wonder, like, where's your sparkling wine? And they always have it in a corner somewhere <laughs> just so that they, they can drink it. Oh, my right. gosh. So their own secret stash that nobody gets to drink and, you know. Yeah, right. Totally. It's, it's yeah. It's really it's so good. That is it's funny. Yeah, they don't sell it usually, but it's great. So it's you've been traveling a bunch. Um, yeah. On your trip, which I imagine involved a lot of um, well, sherry and vinegar, and um, when you were on a vinegar trail with. Um, oh yes, yeah. My husband with, just finished a um, vinegar book of, of travels throughout the world, so. I got so, to jump on that. So let's talk about Mike. So when Michael was tasting vinegar, you were yeah. drinking what and where? And did you fall I, in love? <laughs> so in, um, in France, he sort of shot off to Orléans to taste some vinegar there. And I took a train to Sancerre <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and drank beautiful wines there when he was in Austria, um, tasting with this amazing guy, Irvin Gegenbauer. I uh, drove out to Burgenland and tasted wines with um, with Klaus Preisinger and Heidi Schrock and a bunch of other really incredible producers there. Uh, I've kind of I. And then somehow I convinced him to go to Piedmont. Um, is, <laughs> is there no vinegar in Piedmont? <laughs> There is, and there, it turns out um, it's illegal for producers in Barolo to make vinegar in the same place where they're making wine. They, they worry about contamination, but oh. so many of them are making vinegar. <laughs> it, was just, just, it was just so funny. And we also went to Modena, and Michael met up with um, Massimo Butura to talk about, about Balsamico, and I... And I went off and drank Lambrusco, <laughs> which, which, which was really great. Oh, I, just, I just love the idea of Michael Harlan Turkel on the road <laughs> with, you know, you on the, on the side saying, honey, I'll see you later. You drink that vinegar. <laughs> and I'm going to drink something a little bit more palatable. Were there, exactly. <laughs> were there any huge discoveries? Any huge discoveries? Um. 
You know, it is really interesting to be in Modena and see. I, I definitely went on some of the vinegar things, too. So really curious to see the bus, the way that balsamico is made. And then also, and then to, at the same time to go to see how Lambrusco is made, which is, um, it's, it's sort of pressurized in these massive tanks things that I'd never seen before, and that was really incredible to get to see. But then on the balsamico side, um, the way balsamic's made is you sort of put it through this batteria of seven different types of wooden barrels, and so wow. my little barrel geek self was going crazy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but using all different woods, like uh, like juniper and cherry wood, and I don't even remember what else, but it was, it was really cool to see parallels between the two, for sure. So I know that you, um, you have been a fan of natural wine. You're a they're way ahead of me. Uh, how are you feeling right now? What are you excited about? I'm, I, I'm, I will forever be a fan of wines made with native yeast, um, wines that are made without too much mucking around by the winemaker, wines that are made without dumping a bunch of acid into them or, or using corrections in the winery. And I still feel that way. I'm really I'm excited to watch um, sort of these next these next upgrowths of producers. Uh, obviously, California has been doing this for a while now. Australia has been coming online in the past 10 years. And then um, I was just in South Africa and met up with some really inspiring younger producers who are who are all about using what's already there. And um, there's this one, there's a little collection of producers in South Africa called the Zoo Biscuits. And um, these people are all devoted to finding old vines and making sure that um, the vines aren't ripped out of the ground. There's an issue there where, in fact, um, fruit like apples and peaches and other sorts of of trees are they can make more money from that fruit than they uh-huh. can from growing grapes. So a lot of the old vines have been pulled up over the time, and this collective is completely committed to um, paying paying the right amount of money to keep the, the vines in the ground, which is really awesome. So uh, producers like the Cravens, um, Nick and Janine are awesome, and Marilee Sneeman, who has Memento wines, she's so great. Um, Peter Finlayson, he's also awesome with Cristalum. So really exciting there. I'm excited to hear that your enthusiasm about South African wines, because for a long time, either the price value relationship was off or, you know, there was a very narrow range of wines that uh, I feel like you were excited about. So going there, I'm sure you find so much more on the ground than you find available in the States. Is there more South African wine available now than there has been? For sure. And I think, I think this is really such an exciting time to be interested in wine because there are so many little importers popping up around our country that are interested in places that we've never gone before. So um, we have access to these wines, these small production wines, 
from really um, well-intentioned people that are, <laughs> um, which is really cool. It's, it's the, the accessibility is so much greater now. And really are there awesome. are there importers you want to call out? Like people should go look for them or wines that they're importing. Yeah, I mean we're so lucky in um, in New York to have core wine imports. Eric's doing an incredible job with his portfolio. Um, Jenny and Francois, Jenny just totally leaped into the Eastern European thing and has been sort of tireless in searching out the best things there. Um, There's Vine Street Imports, which brings in a bunch of South African and Australian stuff, which is great. Um, Blue Crane also is bringing in really fantastic fantastic lions. So there's a lot to be excited about. It's just, it's worth, it's worth digging in to these smaller guys and and really finding those discoveries. I'd love shopping in a wine shop by importer because you can just relax and say whatever they bring in, I'm excited to try. And it takes a little bit of the guesswork out. So thank you for that list. The The next big food holiday is the 4th of July. And (laughs) I don't know how many 4th of July stories you've had to do, Megan, where you've had to, you know, find an idea of what people should be serving um, for 4th of July cookouts. But I know you've had a lot of experience with this. What are you going to recommend to people? What what producer and what wines should they be buying? We we tended just historically to... um, context here. We tended to recommend things that weren't terribly expensive, right? Because we assumed that people would be buying a lot of wine um, and certainly buying a lot of wine. Yeah. Um, I, this is, and this is not ingenious in any way, but I, I really can't understand why anyone wouldn't be drinking rosé on the 4th of July. And I, the, and you can drink American if that's what you want to do and have really beautiful wines, um, rosé wines that are not expensive and that are exceptional. I was out in Sonoma uh, a couple months ago and went to see my friends at Scribe Winery. They made um, rosé in a can called Una Lou, named for Andrew's baby daughter, who's so beautiful. And the wine was so good, and it was like four glasses of wine in a little can. (laughs) (laughs) So excellent. Um, but then also there's Kate Norris, who's up in Oregon. She uh, she works with Division Wines, and they're making beautiful rosés. She has she has her own line of sparkling pet nat wines called Gamine, and those are really they're, – they're juicy and salty and so fresh, and uh, I would certainly hunt those down. Those are – spectacular American sparkling wines under $30. Great. Really. And then the last final thing is I've, I've been on this soapbox, which is obviously everyone wants to drink beer on the 4th of July when you're growing. That makes sense. And I, I, I am going to beg that people start drinking local beers made by human people with, with really with grains grown by really solid farmers and, um, and because we are so lucky to be in this moment where beer is is having such a heyday, and within within twenty blocks of my apartment now, there are three breweries that are making excellent things like Folks Beer or Other Half or Threes Brewing. So, pretty much the entire country has access to this, and there's no reason to be drinking the big stuff anymore. So, I have a question <laughs> for you. Let's say you want to drink local. How do you figure out? What's a great beer and not just like a 
crappy beer that's local to you? Like, what's the best shortcut to figuring that out? I mean, I think it's about talking to whoever it is that's either behind the bar in the tasting room or or the brewer if you have if you see them around. Cause I, I people are, are beginning to be so thoughtful about where their hops are coming from, where their grains being grown, if the grains being grown in a way that's sustainable, not only for for business but for the planet. And I and there's so much effort being put into this now that. I think it's a really it's something that everyone can do without without too much trouble. So, is there um, an online resource like somebody who you really trust? Like, hey, take it. You know, somebody's covered beer in all fifty states. Go check out this site or check out this book. Yeah. Or- so, um, I work with Punch Drink, which is a great drinks website, and one of our one of our best beer writers is a man named Aaron Goldfarb, and he covers the best beer in the country that's not made with junk. So I would certainly seek out anything that he writes. I think that's a great column. You know, it's a great title of a story. <laughs> anything great, not made with junk. Okay. That, folks, wraps up Speaking Broadly for today. Megan, as always, it is so exciting to talk to you. You have so much information. I'm taking notes, even though I'm supposed to be really concentrating on what you say. So, <laughs> it's thank been, you so much it's, for it's having been me. Super fun. Um, thank you, listeners, for joining me. I want to thank my engineer Vitor for this very special edition of Speaking Broadly. And give me some feedback. Give me a shout out. Hit me up on Instagram at Speaking Broadly or at FW Scout and uh, tell me what you think. Until next time, this is Dana Cowan. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.